So I'm going to be reading out of the New English Translation. Give everyone a second to get there. Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 20. Therefore, do not be sharers with them. For you were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live like children of light, for the fruit of life consists in all godliness or goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for the things they do in secret are shameful, even to mention. But all things being exposed by the light are made visible. For everything made visible is light. And for this reason, it says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, consider carefully how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the Lord's will is, and do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've been, um, amen, as I've been reading over this passage uh, this past week, I thought back to um, Acts chapter 19 and how there's this uh, worship movement going on uh, for an idolatrous, idolatrous principality in Ephesus. And Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about 10 years later. And what's unique is... Paul doesn't have this activist mindset towards how the church in Ephesus should shine light upon the darkness that's going on in the culture of Ephesus. He has a simple way of living a holy, consecrated lifestyle in adoration and love to Jesus. And so I just want to simply just lay that on our hearts while we're talking about some messages over the next few weeks that spark a lot of activism in a lot of different ways and nothing is wrong with that, for many of us, the next step is to live a holy and consecrated lifestyle. Being holy just as our Father is holy. And that will shine light on the darkness in our culture as we embrace what it means to live as wholehearted Christians today. Cool. Amen. Good. So I love what Ash just drew out of that Ephesians 5 passage, and I can encourage us just to continually go back to that passage as a place of meditation and reflection. We are in session two of the Church in Culture, and today we are going to talk about the subject of race, which I'm really excited to get to talk about it because I feel like there is an intersection of two things today. First, Father's Day, obviously, which we celebrated. Shout out to all the dads in the house. Amen. And that's an appropriate. We started with a golf clap, but kind of, yeah, good. And also today's actually Juneteenth, which I'll talk about a little bit in my message, which is also equal cause for celebration. And if you're unfamiliar with what Juneteenth is, I'll explain it in the message. But I love what Ash was just drawing out of Ephesians 5, this idea that the best way for you to dispel darkness in the culture is to become light. It's not to criticize the darkness, it's to yourself become light. And how do we become light? It's by letting Christ shine upon us. So we behold him, we become like him, and as we become like him, we transform the culture. And how many of you know that anytime you want to dispel darkness, the simplicity of dispelling darkness has everything to do with simply turning on light? Amen. So I'm going to pray for us. And I want to invite you just to open your hearts to hear what the Spirit would say to us as the church today. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that I believe is very dear to your heart 
as a father over all of us as sons and daughters. And I thank you that you are raising up a multi-ethnic church here in Gate City, one that is an expression of your longing and the prayer of your son in John 17, that we would be one as you and the Father are one. And we pray that this would be a witness to our culture and that our faithfulness and devotion to you would transform our city. I pray you would give us courage, give me clarity today as I speak. Let me come and hold my hand, Lord, uh, and, and let me say exactly what is on your heart because that's where we want to orient from today. We want to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and we want to hear what the Father would speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to do a brief review of the conclusion of last week's message just to orient us. And I think in this conversation, it's so important for the church to be very clear as we talk about events in culture over the next few weeks, race, uh, politics, sexuality, materialism, uh, the sanctity of life. As we dive into these subjects, it's so important for us to be clear about what we're for, not just what we're against. And so here are a few things that we're for. We are for the equipping and discipleship of the church. We are, we are for... We are for walking out of kingdom values. We are for both teaching our children and the next generation what is right and what is righteous. And also as we teach them, we also want to walk it out in community. We are for the unity of the body. As I just prayed, John 17, the thing that Jesus prays on the night he's betrayed, and he says, I pray this, Father, for my, for my apostles and for all those that will hear through their preaching and he says, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. And he actually prays it four different times in what is known as his high priestly prayer. And I think it's notable that he prays for unity even above power, even above love, because I believe there's a principle in scripture that when the people of God are in one accord, the power, love, and presence of God flows from that place. And then lastly, we are for purity of devotion to Jesus that our life would be sanctified, transformed, and that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And as we are conformed to the image of Christ, that that transformation in our lives would truly arise as fragrance to the Father and to Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey the things that I've commanded, and we want to be a church of courageous obedience. So those are a few of the things that we're for. A few of the pitfalls that we wanna avoid in this conversation. And I just will, will list these very briefly. Offense, oversimplification, avoidance of difficult subjects, fear and anger. And the two I wanna hit is the issue of oversimplifying and avoiding, because I believe that's a big temptation even in today's conversation on race. We oversimplify things and I've heard people say, well, why do we need to preach and talk about race? Isn't the gospel the solution? And I just want to give you a simple metaphor that I think is really true. Imagine someone coming to me for marital counseling. I sit down with them. They say my husband, the spousal couple, husband and wife, are having a bunch of marriage issues. And I just share the gospel with them. And I say, shouldn't that sufficiently solve all your marital issues? They'd go, no, what you have to do is you have to take the gospel message and you have to make it practically and relevantly applicable to the places of conflict and division, Right? You, no one would argue that, that it's not the church's responsibility to teach and help us apply the gospel to issues of marriage. In the same way, it's the responsibility of the church to teach and apply the gospel to the most controversial issues of culture. And so in the same way, we need to take, yes, the gospel message, which is foundational to all of Christian life. It's the entry point into the kingdom, but we need to talk about how you apply the gospel to your life in order to be sanctified in the place of your racial identity and how you treat people in terms of their race as well. And that's living reconciled. And so that's the danger of oversimplification and then of course the danger of avoidance, right? So when things are in fact complex, it burns calories and we cause, we tend to want to avoid them. You know, I mentioned the other things, offense, anger, unforgiveness, fear. And so we tend to steer away from these topics because they're complex and because they require us to engage in conversation where we go, we don't always know the outcome. We don't always know the opinion of the other. We're afraid of saying the, the difficult thing. And I just wanna challenge us to be a courageous church and being a courageous church, part of being a courageous church is not avoiding these difficult subjects. 
So we want to be courageous and compassionate, not cowardly, complacent, or compromised. There are two ditches on either side. I talked about this last week. There's a bunker mentality that just says we're going to hold out and hope that the cultural storms raging around us pass us over. And then there's those that also at times will acquiesce to the cultural pressure. And that's their path of influence is through assimilation. But we talked about the book of Daniel and how Daniel's path was he consecrated himself to God. And that was the course of actual influence within the culture. I also want to make a comment uh, one of our senior leaders said, drew this to my attention, and I just want to say it super clearly today. In so many of these subjects that we're talking about, two people can have a conviction of conscience, and the Bible doesn't explicitly state in every situation what the right answer is. And therefore, it becomes very important for us to leave room for there to be different places in which people's consciences respond within the culture. And so let me give an example of this. I forget the reference, but I'm just going to mention it now briefly. You know, Paul teaches that for one, to eat food sacrificed to idols would violate their conscience. And it, to them, it would be as though they're worshiping that idol. And he goes, the reality is an idol is nothing. I can eat food sacrificed to idols. There's no violation of my conscience. But he says, for the one who violates their conscience in it, it is as though it is sin to them and to the other who has no violation of conscience. So his point is you can do either and be right within the bounds of the gospel, okay? And so because some of these issues are so complex, yes, there are blatant things that are very clear and we would go, yes, we wanna draw the lines on sexuality. We wanna draw the lines on, uh, on issues of racism. We wanna draw them clearly and biblically, but we also wanna clearly state that there's an appropriate place where we respond to conscience within the Holy Spirit and that is okay. I mentioned Disney a few times last week. You know, if anybody recognizes this, this is a great example. Uh, you know, in the new Lightyear movie, they have the first same-sex kiss in that new film, okay? And so this is a cultural thing that we have to grapple with. One person in our community, which I have incredible respect for this person and how they parent their children, they explained to their children in advance what they would see and used that movie as a teaching opportunity and they went and saw it, okay? There's bounds within the gospel for that and I actually admire that approach. Other parents within the community might say, you know what, I feel like my, it's not age appropriate for my children or I don't wanna support Disney because they're putting this material in the film. And they go, as an issue of conscience, I don't think I can take my kids to see that film. Can we recognize that there's room for both responses to be godly? And there are many different places where we go, okay, yes, there are clear boundaries within scripture. Same-sex attraction is not permissible within scripture. It's not a godly lifestyle. It's not a godly behavior. We can say that clearly, but how we apply that truth in our conduct and the things that we see and the way that we interact, there can be a diversity of opinions, a diversity of viewpoints, and they can also both be right. Thank you for that, sister. I appreciate that. I appreciate your support this morning. You just keep it coming. You can talk at me. We are a multicultural church, amen? So your voice is welcomed, all my brothers and sisters who just love to talk at the preacher. You can talk away at me, it won't throw me off. Amen. You know, sometimes white preachers, it's like, I visited, I visited some black churches early on and, and, white, and, and a lot of times, for those that don't know this, that in black churches, you know, the, the uh, congregation will speak at the preacher. Come on, amen, brother, give a word like that. And thank you again for that. And, um, and like, but the first times I was preaching in black church, it like threw me off every time. Because <laughs> normally in a lot of white congregations, everybody's just dead quiet while you're speaking, you know. And, um, and so you're welcome. We're, we're multicultural. So white people, you can just be quiet. <laughs> black people, y'all can amen and we can all get along. Amen. Amen. All right, good. So where we landed last week is we started to delineate the solution and delineating the solution. Today, the problem that we're going to address is race and racism. We'll dive into that in a minute, but delineating the solution. And we have to recognize the right solution is the right knowledge of God. We have to begin with the revelation of who God is. I love this A.W. Tozer quote. He says, all the problems in heaven and earth though they were to confront us together all at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God. That he is, what he is like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. What we as moral beings must do about him. 
God has thoughts and feelings over issues of race in our culture. God has thoughts and feelings over issues of the sanctity of life in our nation. God has thoughts and feelings on issues of sexuality and how we express our sexuality in our marital covenants, within our families, and within our culture, and especially within those that confess to be his church. God cares about these things, so we must also care about these things and search his word to discover his heart. And when we align with his heart, we will have power to impact the culture. Isaiah chapter 40 says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. You're not gonna prepare the way for someone that you're living disconnected from, right? A big part of preparing the way for the Lord as forerunners, as people who are blueprinting their life after John the Baptist, is that we know the Lord. We know his thoughts and his feelings. This passage is describing the activity of a, of a herald that would go before an ancient monarch. And that herald goes before into a land that's about to be conquered, and he begins to declare the rules of the coming kingdom, and he invites the nation into voluntary submission. If the nation wants to resist that monarch, that eastern monarch, what they would do is build barriers, tear up the roads, do a variety of different things to resist his kingdom. The herald comes and says, instead, submit to the king and the coming kingdom and the rules of that kingdom. Make every mountain low. Lift up every valley, make every crooked path straight. How beautiful would it be that if in our nation, when Jesus' kingdom comes, he's able to say, well, these laws, these laws, and these laws, they're in alignment with my kingdom and they don't have to change. There's actually going to be continuity between the activity of the nations of this earth and the kingdom that is coming. And we get to be first that it would be right within the church and then from the church we would speak to culture like John the Baptist did and say every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of who God is, every mountain of, of lofty opinion that is different than the counsel of the kingdom of God, let those opinions come down and come into alignment. Let every place of confusion, deception, crookedness, perversion, let those be straightened out. And it says that a highway would be prepared for the Lord. And this highway is first represented in the hearts of those who have come to believe in Jesus. If you're here in this room and you're doubtful that you've received him into your heart, we don't prepare the way in society without first preparing the way for the Lord in our hearts. And you can open your heart up to the King of glory today. You can let those crooked paths be straightened out. Those mountains come low and those valleys come up. And when we do that, the Lord enters in upon the highway of voluntary submission and love. And we want him not just in our hearts, but in our families and in our households. And so Isaiah 40, it prophesied of John the Baptist. He had that preparatory ministry. We in the same way are going to be a people that prepare the way of the Lord in the last days. And there are a few things about John the Baptist's ministry. We'll talk about him in, in coming days that I just wanna make note of. He was, he was revelatory over being relevant. He was courageous over being compromised. Everyone from the countryside to the capital came to hear and confess their sins and they experience encounter with God. And that's what we get to be. We get to be a courageous, uncompromised church that speaks and when we speak, we trust that God is going to bless with his authority, his anointing, and it's going to turn the hearts of a nation. We're believing for that. And so I wanna to suggest today how we get super clear on the message regarding race so that we can have that kind of witness and that kind of magnetism in the culture is to know in two directions. And this is getting into today's message. Uh, I forgot to grab one. Jenna, would you actually grab one from my office? Just go grab the No Own Change book real quick because I wanna give it away to someone. So I, I wrote a book over this past year called No Own Change. It was uh, in affiliation with a ministry called One Race Movement that we helped birth out of this house. I'm gonna tell a little bit of that story shortly. But we created this discipleship model, myself and some of the leaders from One Race. And the idea is we know the story. We know the story of history. We know our own story in society. We, we know the history of our communities. And through knowing, we actually prepare ourselves to own. And when we own, we do the practices individually and corporately. Thank you so much. So... 
who would like to commit? If I'm going to give it to you, I want you to commit to reading it. So who would like to commit to reading this? Sister, right here, just come grab this. Jenna, I'm going to give it back to you. Actually, you can <laughs> help her and just give that to her. All right. And so that is a book on the journey into being a reconciler available at Target, Amazon, Walmart, online, any of your local affiliates. And it's a book on how we disciple in the ministry of reconciliation. It begins with knowing, owning the spiritual practices of a reconciler and then ultimately changing because we want the transformation that happens in our hearts to be the transformation that we see in our spheres of influence. And so today though, I wanna drill down on this first step, no. Uh, I debated whether uh, I should open up this message just discussing critical race theory. I decided I would wait until Dustin or Billy are back in the house in order to let them handle that one. So I'm gonna do the, the one on 101 level course on this. And by the way, Dustin's watching at home. He is, uh, he's not feeling well this Sunday, so, but he sends his, his love and regard to everyone. And so we are gonna talk today about knowing and really it's knowing in two directions. It's knowing horizontally, right? So knowing the story of our nation, knowing the story of our community and then having self-reflection and a knowledge of others that allows us to have honest exchange, okay? So knowing horizontally and then we must know vertically as I've already said, we must know the heart of God on these things. So effectively, in the next 45 minutes or so, I wanna talk to us about knowing horizontally and knowing vertically. So first, knowing our national history. It is so important when discussing issues of race in our nation that we understand simple, some of the simple historic overview because in the absence of knowing some of this history, it's very hard to have context for the appropriate conversation. And today, as I mentioned already, is Juneteenth. And so it's, it's a great day to talk about history. So first I wanna go uh, take us all the way back to August of 1619, when the very first 20 enslaved people reached the American colonies, uh, the, the colonies of Europe here in the United States. This was the introduction of slavery uh, in what would later become our nation. And for close to 250 years through the transatlantic slave trade and through slavery across the colonies and then into the United States, uh, we had a, a, a season, a 250 year season that was immersed in racial terror, the dehumanizing of Native Americans and obviously those who have come from African descent in our nation and the subjugation and oppression of those people and they were subjected to rape, murder and the tyranny of slavery. And that happened in our nation for over 250 years of this 402 year history uh, uh, since slavery was first introduced to those American colonies. So at that 250 year point comes the day that we recall to mind today. It was 157 years ago in June of 1865, it was two years after Abraham Lincoln had made his famous Emancipation Proclamation, emancipating those enslaved peoples within the Confederacy, and then later abolishing slavery through the 14th Amendment. And so, I believe, yeah, the 14th Amendment. And so, the news of the Proclamation of Emancipation only traveled as the Union troops advanced through the Confederacy. And geographically, Texas was the furthest place away. And so finally, news through the Union troops reaching Texas arrived in Galveston, Texas. And the very last group of enslaved people hear the news that this proclamation has gone forth and we are set free. It's both a joyful thing that we remember and again, tragic that it was two years delayed from when the first decree was made. And when I studied the history of this day, and, and so there began a practice, now for 157 years, communities in our nation have remembered and celebrated Juneteenth, and then only within these last few years has it actually become a national holiday. But do you want to know the very first places that Juneteenth was celebrated in the beginning years since that news reached Galveston, Texas? It was actually in the communities of faith that they began to celebrate Juneteenth for the very first time. 
And when I learned that, I just thought, isn't it appropriate that freedom would, the freedom and dignity of all people would be celebrated first within the church? That is a part of the positive legacy in our nation that in African-American churches, they first begin to celebrate Emancipation Day, uh, which, which we're remembering here today. So we thank you, God. We mourn the tragedy of 250 years of oppression and the checkered history of 100 years of reconstruction through the civil rights era. And we thank you for the opportunity that you've given in the last 50 years for equal and civil rights for the first time in 400 years of history, Lord. Thank you that you've done that in our generation. And so as we recount that history and we look at that picture, we've only really had the possibility of equal rights in our nation for 15% of our racial story together. So why is it important for us to tell that story and to give that context? Because if you're over 67 years of age in this room today, you may have been born into a segregated South. And so if we as a church community think that 350 years of oppressive history can be resolved in its entirety in a single generation, I think you're overly optimistic concerning how fast those scars can heal. Now, I believe that the remedy for a divided nation is a united church, but we have to approach the disease of racism and the deep, dark roots that it has in our nation with a a sobriety that is warranted in light of the history. So we have to know the story that I just described to you. We also need to know our own spiritual family's journey. In 2016, Billy Humphrey stood before our congregation. He had come out of a reconciled community. He had lived deeply reconciled in his own life. And he confessed to all of us. He said, because of the deep work of reconciliation in my own life, I have failed to disciple it in the culture of our church. And we're gonna change that. We're gonna talk about it regularly. We're gonna live reconciled in a deeper way. And I'm going to make sure that what is true in my life gets expressed throughout our spiritual family. And that began a a journey of these past six years of racial reconciliation, taking on a different emphasis in what would become Gate City Church. And thank you, God. I was just even reflecting today. Thank you, God, for spiritual fathers, men like Dustin and men like Billy, who have taken the challenge of the present hour to heart and said yes to the invitation of God. It's appropriate on Father's Day that we would just honor the spiritual fathers of this house and we say to Billy and to Dustin, when and if you're watching this, we thank you for being spiritual fathers who lead in courage. And I'll even mention my own father-in-law. He always reads, uh, listens to my messages every week. So I got some, some constructive feedback this past week. Thanks, Paji, appreciate that on, on my message. And uh, it was very helpful. I'm probably doing a better job this week because of his feedback. But he chose to put his five daughters and his family into one of the first integrated churches in South Carolina uh, in the 1980s. And, and my wife may share a little bit of her story later, but if she doesn't, he, he chose to be a champion of racial reconciliation before it was ever something that was popular. And he paid a huge sacrifice uh, in prayer and in tears and in the way he lived his life cross-culturally and living it reconciled. And I know that I, I look at my life and I go, where did the generational blessing of being able to minister in reconciliation in the ways that I have, where does it come from? I'm fully confident it's the prayers of my father-in-law. I'm fully confident uh, that it is the gift and commitment of his life of reconciliation that I'm getting to walk in a, a, a greater portion of. And so we have to remember our own spiritual family's history. So then in 2017, we helped birth a citywide movement of racial reconciliation. We can go ahead and just throw these pictures up and I'll just walk through our our story as a spiritual family. In uh, 2018, we went to the top of Stone Mountain. And this is an image of the solemn assembly that we held there at the top of Stone Mountain. If you don't know the history of Stone Mountain, it is the historic birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan on Thanksgiving Eve of 1915. A ceremony happened right there on top of that mountain where the Klan burned across publicly for the very first time in a ritual ceremony led by a minister. And they 
defiled the physical high place over our city and they reinvigorated what was the dying movement of the Ku Klux Klan. And what we felt God prophetically assigning us to do was to take pastors and leaders to that very same place in 2018 and to repent of the history of complicity in the church with racism over the previous 100 years. And we did that with 500 pastors and leaders that were multi-ethnic, that had built relationship with each other. We did 40 days of fasting. We did pastor groups leading up to it so that we could stand on top of that mountain in a spirit of oneness and we could erect a cross draped in crimson and white to represent the blood of Jesus and the purity that that grants. And we could actually cleanse the, the demonic powers over our city of racism and dead religion. And we signed something that day called the Atlanta Covenant, which was a commitment to stand against racism in all its various forms. And there were over like two or 3,000 on top of the mountain that day, 25,000 participated in the open field at the base of the mountain. And I believe we shifted something spiritual in the atmosphere of our city. And it was all something that the Lord did. From there, a year later, we actually took a season and did something called the Day of Lament, uh, the Day of Remembrance. We remembered that 400-year history that I was telling you about. You can go ahead and show the next picture. And part of that was gathering leaders at Ebenezer Baptist Church downtown and having a conversation around the model that I described to you earlier, knowing, owning, and changing the story. And then a year later from that, in the summer of 2020, go ahead and show the next picture, we actually, within two weeks, at the leading of the Lord, put together the largest Juneteenth prayer and March event in the midst of the COVID-19, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And we gathered over 12,000 people in Centennial Olympic Park. And we gathered over 500 different church leaders to stay in the midst of the George Floyd uh, issues and the civil unrest that followed that across our nation to say, to give voice to the church and say reconciliation and the appropriate way to pursue racial reconciliation, that that wisdom lies within the church and we should lead in lending our voices to it rather than lagging. And we should lead in being peacemakers and reconcilers and declaring to the culture and God granted us the ability to do that. We were covered by hundreds of national news outlets. We had the largest gathering because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our gathering of believers was the largest Juneteenth gathering in the nation. And we went from Centennial Olympic Park to the state capitol. And there we are at the state capitol, praying and interceding. And we actually had the new chief of police. And we actually had the opportunity to pray with him on that day. And then just one more picture. And then this is as we gathered back at Centennial Olympic Park. That's Maverick City Music leading us in worship. And as they were leading their worship set, they began to sing a spontaneous chorus. You may know this song, build your church, build your church, build it from the ground up. They actually got that song spontaneously at our gathering and wrote that song out of this Juneteenth gathering. And in the midst of them leading that worship set, the Lord speaks to me. I had been doing one race for over four years at that point, And he commissioned me and gave me my next assignment. And I remember looking out on the assembly of Centennial Olympic Park. And I remember feeling the sense that this is what the worship of heaven is going to be like. Multi-ethnic, passionate, fervent. The church not within a building, but on display for the whole city and nation to see. And I remember in that place, I heard the voice of God. I have not heard the voice of God audibly in my heart many times in my life. And I just heard him say the simple phrase. He said, build me a church that looks like this. Build me a church that looks like this. And I knew in that moment that what had maybe been an idea or a dream in my heart to build a, a multi-ethnic church centered in night and day worship and prayer in our city, that it wasn't just an invitation, it was a command. <laughs> and so for me, in my heart, in that day, as a son of Atlanta, I began a new journey to say, I'm committed, Lord, to whatever that looks like. And the things I understood it to mean are the very things I said to you just now, that we would have a, a church that is fervent in prayer and abandoned in worship, that we would be a church that is a witness to the city in our racial unity and that we would be a multicultural expression and one that transcends the four walls of the church in its impact on culture. And that is what we are doing Amen. And that's why we're having this conversation today. 
because we have to be a church that engages with culture and becomes the transformation that we want to lead out in the world around us. And so now to bring it back to this simple point of now knowing your story, and we're gonna do a little exercise. Uh, It's so important before you engage culturally with others to have an awareness that you yourself have a culture. And this point is a really important point in a no-own-change journey to becoming a reconciler. And the reason why is people who are in the minority, typically in our nation, they're aware that they have a culture because they constantly feel the pressure of the majority. But for so many that are in the majority, typically people that are the same color as me, or same background as me, those people that are in the majority, sometimes they even lack awareness of their own culture because their culture is mostly normative, right? And so be beginning to become aware of the fact that whether you're white, black, Asian, or Hispanic, you have a culture and a racial identity that is distinct. And a lot of that has been formed by your family history. And so I have a little exercise that I want us to do today. And so in a moment, we'll put on some music and we'll give you guys five minutes for reflection and the questions are in the notes. But this exercise for personal reflection, I've done it with pastors and leaders and workshops. I've never done it in a room this big but I'm excited to try it with you guys today. So if you have your journal, if you have a place in your phone that you like to take notes, open that up. And I'm gonna give you three questions. Like I said, they're also in the notes. And I believe that these questions are really gonna help you reflect on your own racial journey. And perhaps in sharing them with someone else, you'll learn something about their journey. So the first question, what have your grandparents taught you, positive or negative, about your own race? and then about other races. What have your parents taught you? What your parents taught you, positive or negative, about your own race and about other races. And then lastly, what do you want your children to have learned from your life about their racial identity and about other races? Okay, so three questions. What have your grandparents taught you about your race and about other races? What have your parents taught you about your race and other races? And then what do you want your children to have learned from you about your race and other races? Great, so I'm gonna put five minutes on the clock. I just want, we may not do a full five minutes, but Jonathan's gonna play some music for us and we're just going to take a moment and consider.
that good? So if you want to begin to wrap up your answers, and you can certainly go back to them if you uh, weren't able to complete your quiz on time. And for those at home, I hope you played along as well. So uh, rather than taking time for you guys to share with each other, I just wanted to give some of our leadership team. You can keep playing, Jonathan. It sounds really nice. Just keep it. Yeah. Just keep that in there behind us for just a few more minutes. Um, and so I, I want to invite Ash, Rolando, and Hannah. And I texted the three of them earlier last week. My wife didn't get the memo, unfortunately. So she said, you want me to come there right now? <laughs> I did ask you earlier this week. So, so she, you're getting her answers really in, in real time. But if you guys would just share some of your, your reflections to these questions next two, three minutes. So. So for me personally, uh, with my grandparents, um, all my grandparents had passed away by the time that um, I was born. So I didn't receive any personal uh, legacy of uh, information and, and experience from them. Um, for my parents, um, I got a couple of different things. I got uh, that I was uh, uniquely made in, in God's image and wherever I was supposed to be. Um, I should bear that and bear that unapologetically and openly and um, just love being black and just love it and embrace it and show it for all its beauty. And um, I, I also received uh, a soberness of reality of watch out because not everybody's going to uh, want to feel that. And they're not going to want to feel that from you and you wearing it proudly may... Um, cause disruption in places and um, it may be uncomfortable for people to feel you that way as well too and so uh, uh, awareness of that that other cultures are not looking out for your best interest as well what I want to teach my children are that um, they're beautiful made in God's image and that um my wife is Indian, so we have a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural family, and that there is distortion in, and there's beauty in both of our cultures. But who they are made in the image of God and their skin color, um, I think of skin colors and I teach my kids this, that they're like flowers. And so just like you would look at flowers and you would see um, a field of flowers that different colors, whatever they are, they're all beautiful. And they all unique, and they all have their own um, glory to them. So. Um, I'm going to look at the questions here. So, my grandmother and my grandfather are on uh, my mother's side were living as I was growing up, and um, they talked to me about uh, my. I'm half Cuban, half Colombian. A lot about Colombian culture um, and how uh, beautiful it is, and how don't ever forget where you came from. Uh, they didn't teach me much about other races, just about understanding who I was and where I came from. Um, my parents, <clears throat> um, I learned a lot about Cuban culture and Colombian culture in America before the internet existed. So I'm just kind of listening uh, as they're kind of battling each other about whose culture is better. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing that was that united them, and, and unfortunately, was to be weary of, of white people. Um, they did instill that in me when I was young. It wasn't hard, but it was said regularly, be careful, you're going to work hard, you're going to work for people, but you always have to look out for yourself. Um, that was a message I grew up with. And then what I want my children, I think that to, what Ash shared is I want my children to know that their skin is beautiful, um, like literally beautiful. And what I want them to know about other races is that uh, we all bleed red in this one kingdom. And um, if you're going to stand for unity, then you have to be strong enough to take on a little bit of, you know, um, uh, of warfare. So I instilled it to those guys. My wife being black, we have a multicultural family as well. And so, you know, those are the questions. You ready? All right. I'm going to share what I have. So from my grandparents, um, what comes to mind is specifically my grandmother on my dad's side is Jewish. And so the message of race 
I received from her was really from the suffering and oppression that the Jewish people have received. Historically, a lot of her anger and a lot of her hatred towards particularly Christians who in, her own, in our own family line persecuted coming out of Russia, had to be smuggled out of Russia and hay wagons because the Christians wanted to kill the Jews. And so just hearing her, her experiences and our family's experiences of oppression from there, um, but not any really necessarily messages related to the current cultural issues of today here. From my parents, um, really so blessed. They invested a really special effort for us to be um, connecting as fam like as a family with people of, of other races. And the church I grew up in, as Hazen mentioned, was an intentionally interracial community. Um, I sat and got my spiritual, I sat under and got my spiritual foundation under a black pastor, Pastor Richard Fleming, and for my whole childhood. And it, to me, it was normal to share life, to share my home and go to other people's home of people of different races. And I feel really grateful for that. Um, for my children, what I wrote down is that um, I want them to know that as white people, we've received special privileges from being in a majority culture and that we should share those privileges with others intentionally. Um, and that one way we can do that is to champion those whose circumstances have not provided the opportunities that we've had. I also, um, I also want them to know uh, and understand that extra space and care should be made for the wounds that have been caused by race and that we have the opportunity to show the compassion and love of Jesus by truly listening and, and making space for those conversations. So we try to do that in our home and want our kids even to be, begin to, to do that with their friends. So. Amen. Thank you. It's good. I think for the time. Yep. Thanks. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. You held it down. It was great. One of the main things that, that really stood out to me as we did that exercise just now, and thank you guys for sharing so poignantly and so succinctly, is that though all of them started from really different places. They all ended up in really similar places. And that's what we get to do as spiritual family is though all of us in this room have started in maybe really different places on the issue of race, we all get to come together to a kingdom culture regarding race and we get to pass that kingdom culture on to the next generation and that's what we're doing here today. So now I want to jump into the, just the last bit of my message, knowing Jesus as creator. And if there's a time in this message, we've had some reflection, we've had some thoughts, we've had a history lesson. If it's all right, I'd like to take a few minutes and just preach. Thank you. So we talked about knowing horizontally, right? Knowing history, knowing our own story and some of our history here as a community. Context is really important. And then how do we know our own story and know the stories of others? And what I want to challenge you to do is, as just a call to action, is to take this conversation to the next level and have it around the dinner table this week. Answer these questions with your kids. And if you have a trusted relationship with a person of a different race or from a different nation or culture, maybe ask them the question, what did your parents, what did your grandparents teach you about race? And share your own answers. This is what my parents taught me what my grandparents taught me about race because these are great conversation starters and I believe you'll probably learn more about race through having that conversation than you've learned in this message today. And so let's build those bridges together as spiritual family. So now I want to close in just talking about knowing Jesus as creator, right? And there's an idea in the Jewish Christian faith and I put a definition there in the notes. It's taken right from Wikipedia. And this is the idea of the Imago Dei. And it's taken from Genesis 1.26, where the Holy Spirit speaking within itself, it says, let us make God in our image. And it says, let us make man and woman. God made man and woman in his image, right? 
And so it's so interesting because you see the arc of creation within the seven-day creation narrative. He comes to the sixth day, and then the sixth day is the day that he creates the crown of his, his created order, and he creates man and woman in that day. And when he creates humanity, that's the day he marks and says, he looked upon all that he made, and it was very good. In all of creation, we carry a unique role in that we as humanity bear the mark of the creator. We are his handiwork. He fashioned everything else by speaking, but he took human beings and he formed them out of the dust of the earth with his own hand and he breathed life into them. And so we uniquely bear the image of God in all creation. And it's not just one race or one nationality that bears the image of God. God is so diverse in his beauty that he decided to distribute across many cultures, many races, many nationalities, his distinct image. Acts 17, 26, this is where we get the one race verse from, where we named that that ministry, one race movement from. I, I have this verse on the wristband that I'm wearing as a reminder that from one man, he made all the nations. And that word is ethnos. So it's not just uh, political geographic nations. It's actually the ethnicities that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. That's Paul preaching in the Areopagus to the philosophers of, of Greece. And he declares, God is the God of all the nations of the earth. And so he is a God of many nations, many cultures. And so he is three things. He is creator, and then ultimately, he is redeemer of culture, okay? He does not require us to come to him, and in doing so, park our unique cultural history at the door. He actually wants you to bring who you are in your culture into the kingdom, And I think we see the greatest picture of this in Acts chapter two, when he pours out his spirit at Pentecost, it was the feast of harvest and all the different Jews from different nations, different skin tones, different languages, different cultures are gathered to Jerusalem. And when they go to proclaim the glory and the gospel, it says that they heard that message in the many languages of the nations that they were from which tells me that God is not into creating a homogeneous spiritual body, he wants to bring together the nations of the earth and then redeem those nations. And those nations are going to continue even on into his eternal kingdom. So who he has made us to be, he's created us in his image. And then he has called us even in the midst of our unique culture. And then he has individually fashioned us I love what Ash said, that he wants to teach his children that they are beautiful. It mirrors perfectly what Psalm 139 describes. For each and every person in this room, no matter what your background, no matter what your race, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you may have grown up in a church culture, or you may have grown up in a facet of society, or you may have grown up in a social situation that said black was not beautiful. But I wanna tell you, we need to create a church environment where we say black is beautiful and white is beautiful and and Hispanic is beautiful and Asian is beautiful and all of them have a place in the kingdom of God. Can I tell you, I love vanilla ice cream. I also love chocolate syrup and caramel syrup, right? I love all the flavors and I even love rainbow sprinkles. There is a unique value that our distinctives bring to the kingdom of God, and God wants to welcome us in those distinctions. If you could throw up that slide real quick of the colors of the nations. This is a a graphic that shows where the skin tones tend to lie historically, geographically. And obviously that has everything to do with where the sun hits on the earth, right? You're white and pasty if you're up there in the Nordic countries and you're, you're preserved from the sun if you're right there in the sub-Saharan belt of Africa. And, and what I want us to see is that all of these distinctive skin tones, that's what we're gonna see when we get to heaven. That's what we're gonna see when we enter into worship around the throne 
and how strange it is that we would divide, how demonic, frankly, it is that we would exalt one skin tone in the spectrum over another skin tone. And we would divide our, the devil is just looking for any opportunity to divide us because when we come together in unity, reflecting the beauty of our creator and maker, we declare something true about who God is as a creator that he wants to oppose. God cares so much about all the nations and all peoples and all ethnos. He says, I'm not coming back until I have representation in my kingdom from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And in Acts chapter two, he also says, I will pour out my spirit on all peoples, on all humanity, as some translations say. So I believe that we are the forerunners of a massive multi-ethnic revival that is going to press into the hardest and darkest places of the earth and take the gospel of the kingdom to every single human people group. But we don't have to wait to begin to represent the heart of God with respect to those nations and peoples. We get to represent it and know it and carry it in our hearts today. So lastly, this is the last point. He's created us, he's redeeming culture. And then this is a little bit of a mind-blowing thing, but he is actually going to glorify all of his people. And in the process of glorification, you are not going to use, lose your unique cultural and national identity. In Micah chapter four, it talks about how all the nations, the distinct nations that are going to be in the earth, in the eternal age, are going to go up to Jerusalem and be taught by God. I was in a, uh, in a theological program and it was a little bit more on the liberal side. And I remember they put up an image of Jesus that was a, a composite of what he would look like if he was representative of all the nations of the earth, right? And it, it was an interesting idea, but I wanna tell you, that's not what Jesus looks like. Jesus is the root and the offspring of David, right? And so in that, he is a Middle Eastern Jewish man. Right, he's probably about five foot eight and shorter, okay? And he probably looked more like Rolando than he does me, okay? In our culture, he would have been a person of color. Had he shown up in the 1950s, he would not have been able to participate in white only spaces, okay? Jesus is a Jewish man and he is a Jewish man. It says in Revelation 22, he says, I'm the root and the offspring of David. He says, I'm the bride and the morning star. He is fully divine, but he's also forever a human being. And in his humanness, he is forever a Jewish man from Middle Eastern descent, born of Mary, right? Descendant of David, okay? And so Jesus has dignified, he's chosen a race and he's going to glorify you in your racial identity. And we see that in Revelation chapter seven, around the throne of God, all the nations are represented in worship. And that John is actually able to distinguish the difference between nation and culture. He says every tribe, tongue, people, and language were represented there before the throne. And those were the martyrs coming out of the great tribulation. So at the end of the age, the gospel is going to reach all ethnos, all people groups, all nations. It's what Jesus prophesied. It's what John saw in the heavenly picture of worship. But when I was studying this, I saw another place that I wanna draw our attention to here as we close. God so loved you. He created you with a distinct, knit you together in your mother's womb with a distinct cultural and, and racial background. He's called you into his kingdom and a part of that culture is even being redeemed. And then ultimately in eternity, right? That race and culture is going to be perfected and glorified. And it's gonna be a beautiful part of the tapestry of the kingdom of God for all eternity. And so in Revelation 19, we see the saints in the same robes as we saw the martyrs in Revelation chapter seven. And implicitly we can assume that if this is the church throughout all the ages, just as in Revelation seven, it's from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, I believe in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the lamb, the celebration, that human history and the nations are now in the, under the leadership of Jesus. He's come back and he's brought his bride to himself and we are going to, the songs we sing, we're going to be married to the lamb. And we're gathered around the table 
And I just love Revelation 7, we're gathered around the throne in worship, many tribes, tongues, nations, and people. Revelation 19, we're gathered around the table in celebration, many tongues, tribes, nations, and people. And I just felt like that's a picture of who we get to be as the church. We get to gather on Sunday in worship together, many tribes, tongues, people, and nations. And then we get to gather around our tables together in celebration and bring that same beautiful expression because we wanna be a church on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't wanna have to wait for the marriage supper of the lamb to get to know my brother or sister from another nationality, another culture. I wanna taste that fellowship today. I wanna enjoy that part of the kingdom today. That thing Jesus prayed for in John 17, Father, that they would be one, even as you and I are one. And we know that that isn't a prayer for an eternal reality because he says that, that our unity will have earthly implications. He says, when they're one, as you and I are one, Father, we know that can't just be in heaven because he says, that's how the whole world will know that they are mine. In John, in John 13, he says that, that that's how the world will know that we are his disciples. And in John 17, it's how we will know, how the world will know that he is sent from the Father. So what's at stake in us entering into reconciliation and oneness? It's the witness of Jesus in the culture. And I wanna invite us today to double down on being a church that carries the oneness of God, not in being homogeneous, but in the tapestry of humanity and to be one that dignifies the Imago Dei in every skin tone, cultural background and nationality because that is how it's going to be in heaven. So I wanna invite us, let's stand together. If you're hearing this message today and you say, I wanna double down on the invitation to be the multi-ethnic bride. I want, to, I want to say yes to being a part of a spiritual family that does what I'm describing. And you want grace to have the conversations. You want a grace to engage with your whole heart. And perhaps there's a place where something struck you today and you realize you're not alignment with the vision of God for a church that is of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Perhaps you're hearing this today and what I'm describing is burning in you and you say, I want to be a champion of this and a reconciler in a different way. Wherever you may fall on that spectrum today, whether your heart is being awakened to these realities or your heart's already burning, I wanna invite you to come forward and receive a fresh commissioning to be a multi-ethnic church in our city, conveying worship and prayer and as a witness to Atlanta. If you want to be that, I wanna invite you to come forward and I wanna pray for you. say yes to the grace of that invitation so Lord even as people come in this altar and as we conclude our time together Lord I pray you would speak to people concerning their unique portion I pray that you would release grace on every person in this altar black white Hispanic and Asian Lord I pray for those in this room Lord who are hearing today how precious their part is in this family and in the kingdom. Lord, I pray you would double stamp that upon their hearts right now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would fully redeem and bring into alignment our hearts and minds in the place of oneness. I pray it would be in our homes and in our relationships with one another. I pray it would be in our worship on Sunday and around the table Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Lord, I pray that you would just release a grace upon this house, Lord, to be the church on earth as it is in heaven. That you would release a grace upon this church to be spiritual family from a variety of ethnicities and nationalities. God, I pray that we would be a place that the world would see the oneness of the body of Christ in the midst of the beauty of diversity. God, release it, Lord, and release even in this moment a divine commissioning for people to be champions of reconciliation. For people to give voice in their sphere of influence 
to the thoughts and ideas we proclaim today. would burn in the heart of your bride. You're longing for the multi-ethnic bride at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Lord, I pray, let the vision of eternity captivate our hearts and the beauty of our bridegroom. Let it fascinate us, God. Let it capture us, God. Touch us today, Lord the vision for your church in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna to continue to worship. Some of our leaders will come and just pray for those who are here at the altar. If you're on the altar ministry team, please come and pray. Let's engage with the Lord for a few minutes.